Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. After spending two episodes in the Empyrean Heights of Herman Hesse's The Glass Bead Game, Phil and I needed a change of pace. We wanted something simple, bald, trashy. It was Phil who suggested we discuss a film that I happened to have tried to get my wife to watch the night before, John Milius's Conan the Barbarian, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger and James Earl Jones. Released in 1982, this film and its 1984 sequel, which we meant to discuss but never really got to, are unlikely to spring to mind when you think of the weird. And yet both of these films are drenched in the defining mood. This may not be surprising when you consider that the films were loose adaptations of stories Robert E. Howard, a master of the strange tale, wrote in the golden age of weird literature. Juvenile sensibilities and questionable politics aside, both films and especially the first one, partake of that atmosphere that Howard and his peers saw as the quintessence of good storytelling. They pass with aplomb the test of the weird, in the language of Arthur Mackin, the test of ecstasy. At the beginning of the film, a young Conan is told by his blacksmith father that there is only one thing a man can trust in this world, his sword. It'd be too easy to read this simply as a celebration of brutish self-reliance, even if it is partly that. In a fantasy story, no sword is just a sword. Think of all the magic swords that throng our legends and fantastic literature, the talking ones, the thinking ones, the ones that feel. A fantasy sword isn't simply an instrument, it's a being. The Canadian fantasist Stephen Erickson once described fantasy as, quote, the one genre where you can take a metaphor and make it real. He went on, if you consider the trauma and the horror and the mayhem of battle, then of course the weapon will scream. The Conan films are ecstatic because they are fantasy done well. They're among the few fantasy films to understand this fundamental precept that Erickson puts so simply. Fantasy is the imaginative process by which words are made flesh. What else could we mean when we speak of magic spells than that a man said horse and a horse came out of his mouth? So if we're going to see more in Conan than an exercise in juvenile trash, we must look at it through the crystal lens of the imagination that sees past all the oughts that condition our sense of what is right and wrong, praiseworthy and condemnable in art and literature. As the queer filmmaker Jack Smith wrote in an essay we discuss in this episode, juvenile does not equal shameful, and trash is the material of creators. It exists whether one approves or not. And that's the thing about these trashy juvenile films. They exist they exult in their existence. Maybe that's what Mackin meant by ecstasy. If you like what you hear today and want to support Weird Studies, we invite you to sign up on our Patreon, where bonus episodes and exclusive material are released on every off week. If you dig the music in the show, you may be interested to know that Weird Studies, music from the podcast volume one, is available on vinyl and CD on Pierre Martel's Bandcamp page. Just Google Weird Studies Bandcamp to find it. All right, on with what is best in life. 
on Conan the Barbarian. We hope you enjoy our conversation. JF. Phil. What is best in life? <laughs> oh, now I'll have to remember exactly what he says. I want to hear your what is best in life. What is... Um... And I know in your case, it is not to crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and hear the lamentation of, of the women. women. No, it's not. That's not really your style. What is best in life for me is a weekend without any obligations or engagements. I'm the opposite of Conan. I'm just trying to imagine, just Conan just sitting around, just yeah. like, oh, it's so nice not having to kill giant snake monsters or... Exactly. I'm sure actually Conan totally would agree with that. You know, he was just trying to please his slave masters when he said that. I think what Conan wants is just to, He just wants know, the quiet life. To steal enough to be able to retire. I have a one last you know, job. Yeah. Except that he's been and told. Then I'm out. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's exactly me. I am Conan. Somebody right now is putting a little bag of money on a piece of string. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and tying it to the wooden stick that's holding up a box. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. That's how, that's how you get JF to direct a TV show for you. Ah, oh, the life of a dandy. <laughs> Planeur. Uh I, I, um, a boulevardier. <laughs> you know, this is a great. Actually, you know, our society is not kind to boulevardiers. I just no. want to say that. No, this is not the age of the boulevardier. It's the age of the feuilleton. So, <laughs> feuilletonier. Yeah, those people do quite well as long as they're willing to work for exposure. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're just kind of bringing things into. That we were discussing before the show, but I want to start. Maybe this is a good entry point for talking about Conan. And you know, listeners, we're talking about the Conan movies. The Conan stories may come into play, but we watch the movies in preparation for this for this this episode. And by movies, I mean the Schwarzenegger movies from the eighties. So Conan the Barbarian, Conan the Destroyer. I didn't bother watching the Jason Momoa remake. Not remake, but. Um, film that came out a few years ago except um, no substitutes yeah exactly so although you know fans of robert e howard who w are have been hoping that we'll do a show on the original conan stories will be disappointed because we're talking about the conan movies which are a mishmash of different ideas from robert e howard's material yeah yeah i you know so the funny thing is that i've read a bunch of conan stories and i hardly remember anything about any of them um, yeah. But the Conan, well, particularly Conan the Barbarian, the first of the two films with Arnold yeah. Schwarzenegger in the title role, is just etched in my memory. It's so vivid to me. To the extent, I know I'm going to piss off people who are fans of Robert E. Howard's work, but I wonder if film is just a somewhat better medium for this kind of story. Because, you know, it's one thing to hear an Atlantean grave described, but then to see it rendered well with, by the guttering light of a flame and seeing the, the bones of a dead ancient king upon his throne 
to actually see that well done and kind of like like where it looks like fucking cool. Yeah. It's something. Yeah, these are stories that are supposed to spark images in your head and seeing a movie that's all about the brilliant flaming image like what Jack Smith was talking about when he was talking about the flaming image, although uh, he did not have this particular film in mind. I think he may have died, in fact, before or around the time of, of this film. Anyway. Oh, he's an ally. He's an ally if we're going to talk about the magic oh, yes. of the Conan films. Yeah, he, yeah yes. I haven't thought of that. I want to say something, though, about the – because you touched on this now, the relationship of fantasy to cinema. It's very interesting. Fantasy meaning – kind of like epic or sword and sorcery fantasy. It has a really kind of weird relationship with film. It's really hard to pull off, I found. There was a, there was a slew of fantasy films in the 80s after Conan came out. Because right before Conan came out, there were, had been several Greek mythology films. Remember the one with uh, Theseus oh, yes. and the, the you know Clash of the Titans and that sort of thing? Yep. And then Conan kind of opened the way to what would eventually yield things like Willow and uh, eventually Lord of the Rings. and But it's really, really hard to pull off fantasy on film. And I'm not quite sure why. But what I mean is, this is my only point, there are very few good fantasy films, in my opinion. There, there are, science fiction's a whole other story, you know? And I don't know if it's a marketing thing where people tend to uh, you know, more on the fence about fantasy. I don't know if it's the if it's a political thing even that the oft-cited latent fascism of fantasy or, or regressive uh, ideology in in fantasy that makes it unpalatable to people who want to be of their time. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but Conan is one of the films that succeed. I think, uh, even though in some ways it looks like. Like somebody filmed like a Ren Fair, <laughs> you know, so somebody went to a Renaissance Fair and filmed a bunch of like dudes who look like my uncles from the 70s, you know, wearing armor and stuff. Um, it, it, despite that, it works precisely because of those guttering flame images that you just mentioned, because the sets and because the atmosphere, they paid enough attention to what mattered for it to work. Yeah. I mean, what I love about, especially Conan the Barbarian, I watched Conan the Destroyer last night for the first time and had a, had a lovely time. I thoroughly enjoyed it, even though I recognize it's not, it's not the movie that the first Conan film is. Um, still a great movie, but, I think. But still great, yeah. Yeah. Both of them have mood, which yes. long-time listeners of the show will know I won't shut up about how important mood is. Mood, a non-intellectual even non-verbal, non-cognizable aspect of mm. piece of narrative art, and yet is so important to me at any rate, an atmosphere, a mood. And I don't know if Mackin's idea of ecstasy exactly answers to the description of a mood. It's like something a little bit different from that maybe. Yeah. But closely related at any rate, there is something about these films, especially the first of the two, that possesses that quality of ecstasy. And I've said this a number of times about different things we've talked about on the show, and it might just be a get out of jail free card. It might just be a way that I can argue 
for the relevance of a given piece of culture to our show, all I have to do is say, well, in Mackin's terms, Mackin's terms, sorry, um, I always mispronounce his name. In Mackin's terms, it's an ecstatic piece of art. That's just my conversation ender. Because like, you know, it's not like there's some piece of litmus paper we can stick onto the film, see if it turns pink or blue and see if it has ecstasy or not as my own subjective assessment and who can gainsay that. Nevertheless, I'm willing to argue the point. Mm. Ecstasy. Yeah. The, the, the primacy of atmosphere is really, I think, key. I mean, let's, well, Conan has its roots in weird fiction, right? In the pulp magazines of the thirties, Robert E. Howard's stories. And Robert E. Howard, of course, was influenced by his, um, I guess at the time, a kind of colleague or peer, H.P. Lovecraft. And in fact, uh, Robert E. Howard wrote some outright Lovecraftian stories. The world of Conan is steeped in mystery. And so it's very easy, I think, when you use that world, Hyboria, right? Robert E. Howard's fictional world, to generate something that'll have the qualities that Lovecraft says are essential to weird fiction, namely atmosphere. And atmosphere is, for Lovecraft, anchored in the mood that one experiences when the basic kind of mysteriousness of reality is kind of a, becomes a palpable aspect of the scenery. And so you'll have little things in, like you mentioned, for example, in Conan the Barbarian, there's a scene where you see them crossing the steps, right? They're like wandering across the desert and you see this gigantic mammoth, you know, skeleton just sitting out yeah, there in the in desert. The foreground, which is buried in the sand. Which as you mentioned has become like a trope of of speculative fiction in general. Like if you have a desert scene, you're gonna have some gigantic animal carcass in the background somewhere, the That's bones right. of to show that this is an ancient, ancient world. You know, when when Conan yeah. comes to that Atlantean temple where Krom, you know, guides him to find so he can find his sword, we're touching on the antiquity, the eldritch ancientness of this world. And these characters, in a way, in I find in my favorite fantasy, the characters are not of the past, they're of some kind of post-apocalyptic future. They're in the future of a fallen world. Even, mm. lo, even uh, Tolkien does this. The characters in yeah. Lord of the Rings are at the end of an age. And that makes you feel kind of the mystery of this world, that the characters that you're following don't have enough information to know the world they're in. This is what makes Conan so fundamentally different from Harry Potter. The material they were drawing from to make this film lent itself to that generation of atmosphere that I think is so central to, to great fantasy. That's a brilliant point. I love that. The idea that the people who are in um, Hyboria... Is that the name of the place? Hyboria, yeah. Hyboria. Which is, which is uh, he just played with Hyperborea, right? I'm assuming, like, he just took the yeah. old idea. The Greeks believed there was this land beyond the north, like, in the, the extreme north, the utmost north, there was this land of where people were essentially immortal and where people lived kind of legendary lives called Hyperborea. And then Howard just contracted that term, Hyboria. And in, in, in his mind, Hyboria is an age that exists between the fall of Atlantis and the rise, as we're told in the film, of Arius. And I'm not, I don't know if by Arius they mean the, the sons of Arius. The sons. That does he, wonder, Mako's wonderful intro to actually to both films, but it's done with a good deal more verve for the first one. Yes. 
Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. <laughs> exactly. But I don't know if they mean the sons of Arius, like the, the sons Aryan, of... The like the, what is commonly thought of, or at least was then, as the dawn of... Indo-European, um, yeah. Indo-European history. Right. That's what he means. The invasion of steppe people in, the, in Europe. Exactly. Elsewhere. A-R-Y-A-S is how they write Arius in the script. So I'm assuming that's what he means. Like, so... Yeah. Between in this basically this prehistory, this period that we moderns know nothing about, there was this entire civilization or or a kind of clutch of civilizations that rose and fell, and that's where Conan kind of did his thing. I love that. It's just fantastic. I love that too. Yeah, like something you point out that the characters living in this world are not. You don't think of them primarily as before us. You think of them as belated. Yes, exactly. After after. The death of the old civilization. And one of the things that's wonderful in films, in fictions of this type, is how they picture their characters as picking their way through a landscape dotted with ruins or artifacts from a distant age. Yeah. And these are like not understood. Right. These are either imperfectly understood through a fog of myth and legend or they're just completely baffling things. And so like this works, whether we're talking about adventure time, which takes place in some unspecified future after an, and it's a post-apocalyptic fiction where Finn and Jake are, and other characters in this story are constantly finding artifacts that come freighted with a lot of like heavy implication from the past, but they don't know about it and get in all kinds of trouble trying to figure out how to use these things or how to prevent them from being used. It could work in that kind of context or in something like Conan the Barbarian that takes place at some undefined point in the past. And it's the same thing. You know, there are magical artifacts. Some people have figured out enough about them that they have them and can kind of use them. There are magics abroad in the land that yes. every now, now and then some malignant villainous type like Thulsa Doom will like happen upon it Thoth and figure Ammon. something out. Yeah. Thoth Ammon. Yeah. I love that trope. And that's actually kind of, it's a little bit like the Leviathan bones in the desert trope, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Just little bits of an ancient and incomprehensible past. Exactly. And the, the role of magic is, this is one of the distinctions of sword and sorcery from, you know, distinctions between that genre and other forms of fantasy, like epic fantasy, for example. We can get into those technicalities if we want. But the point is that in, in Sword and Sorcery, typically, so in the stories of Robert E. Howard, or the stories of Fritz Lieber, which are my personal favorite, or to go to your idea of like a far future fantasy, the Dying Earth novels of Jack Vance, which are set at the end of Earth's history as opposed to in the distant past, but the world looks the same. You know, it's like sword and sorcery. <laughs> um, sorcery has an innately kind of vile or chaotic or unpredictable nature. Like sorcery is not good. Um, you can have good wizards, but these are guys who are playing with hazardous materials. Sorcery tends to corrupt. And so for the practice of sorcery will tend to uh, make really, really vile kind of horrible people because sorcery changes you from the inside out. It kind of rearranges your molecular structure. It makes you thirst for power. It, it gives you all the wrong um, feedback 
<laughs> you know, and so you end up becoming someone like Thulsa Doom or Fafamon, specifically in Howard's stories, like seeking immortality and then becoming a kind of lich, a kind of undead wizard that goes on and on and thirsts for power and, and domination. And so the typical sword and sorcery hero, like Conan, who was kind of the prototype, but then you have Fafford and the Grey Mouser from Fitzleiber. These guys are basically just simple thieves, warriors who are just trying to find a place in this world and are confronted constantly with these undead, horrible, lich-like liz- uh, lizards. <laughs> lizards and wizards. <laughs> That's what they should have called the genre. Uh, sorcerers that they have to defeat, not because they want to save the world, but because either they need what the, the sorcerer has, whatever the treasure it is, you know, that, that the sorcerer is hoarding, or they, they, they have to begrudgingly rescue some small settlement uh, or save some situation so that they can just get on with being thieves. I love that kind of ethos of sword and sorcery, where the heroes are not necessarily heroic. They're more like scoundrels who are given access to heroism by virtue of their outsider status. They don't belong anywhere. They're, they wander. Yeah. They're, they're liminal figures. And so they get to do the heroic stuff, but that's the last thing they want to do. Like Han Solo is a perfect sword and sorcery character in science fiction, right? Good point. Yeah. So I, I just love the whole kind of feeling and, and it's perfectly named. Fritz Lieber came up with the name sword and sorcery and he just saw that there was this central dichotomy between the sword and the sorcerer, that the warrior and the sorcerer in these stories. And the first Conan movie really just nails that from the beginning when they talk about the secret of steel. The secret of steel is what protects you. The riddle you. of steel. Yeah, the, the riddle of steel, yeah, this is the term they use. The idea that steel gives you the means to fight the sorcerer. Right, the, the old idea the cold iron is what defeats oh, yeah. magical creatures or fae and all that, which so of the, course is what defeats the wizards in both of the Conan movies. Yes, the sword Steel. Conan's sword can kill the wizards. Uh, <laughs> the way he kills Thulsa Doom is the best. It's so good. <laughs> it's like it's it one is. of the most satisfying on-screen deaths of all time. And you know. Props to freaking James Earl Jones, who is unbelievably good in He's this film. He's so good. Yeah. He's so good.
Okay, I feel like we should at least tell the story of yes. these films, which isn't terribly difficult. They're simple plots. So the first film, Conan the Barbarian, starring a very young Arnold Schwarzenegger, whose English noticeably improved between these two films. We see him first, and he's a boy of about 12, being told by his father, a smith, a village smith in the mountains, about the riddle of steel and saying to his son, you can't trust people and you can't trust animals. You can't trust anything in this world, but you can trust this holding up a freshly forged sword. It's a beautiful sword. The whole credit sequence is the forging of the sword, which, you know, this goes back at least to Wagner, like the very long forging scene in Siegfried, mm -hmm. which I remember the first time I saw it, I'm like, why is it such a big goddamn deal that there's a sword being made? But, you know, there's, there's a lot going on in the smithing of a sword archetypally speaking. Well, the smith in the medieval world was a kind of liminal figure in himself because he was the manipulator of metals. He had a really kind of um, almost magical aura. This is from things I read a long time ago when I was in doing my undergrad. You have to realize the the import or the significance of that moment where humans found a way to work metals. And the link there, the, the association there with alchemy is obvious to some people who know the history of this sort of thing. So yeah, so this, this his father is, is a smith, but also a kind of shaman, a kind of in-between yeah. figure, someone who knows yeah. some secrets about the nature of reality. And in this conversation, it doesn't just establish the theme of you know, the Conan is a, a live by the sword, die by the sword kind of guy. It also introduces a metaphysic. And this is something that makes particularly Conan the Barbarian really unusual, makes it different from the second film, I think, is how steeped in a certain kind of spirituality it is. And when we mm -hmm. say spirituality, that sounds like a kind of crystals and new age music playing softly in the background while yeah. you do a yoga pose. <laughs> it's not that kind of spirituality. John Milius, the director of the first Conan movie, Conan the Barbarian, is a pretty right-wing guy, I think, generally speaking. You know, I will I will say this. John Milius strikes me as the kind of guy you don't want to get in a game of risk with. <laughs> he's, he's a 70s war gamer. Like, yeah. I remember watching interviews with him about Apocalypse Now because he wrote the screenplay for Apocalypse Now. And uh, just the way he talked about – he's one of those guys who, like – to make a point, he'll take you back to the, 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 you know, the Battle of Hastings and just put you in the mindset of William the Conqueror. You know, this kind of like in earnest uh, um, love of, of war and the history of war. And yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and like one of my favorite details that I found when I was doing a, a very lazy pass through Wikipedia to learn a few things is that for one film that he directed, his fee was something like $1.2 million plus a gun of his choice, <laughs> yeah. which paints a picture. Um, yes. Like I said, probably the kind of guy who would take risk way too seriously and end up spoiling everybody else's fun. That's yeah. my mental image of the kind <laughs> of guy he is. Also, also, interestingly, takes credit for the invention of the eight-sided, the, the octagonal chain-link fence environment for mixed martial arts. 
that apparently when they were putting together UFC 1, which really was just kind of a carnival show of tough guy fighting, he was consulted and originally had some crazy idea involving alligators and moats, but they dialed it back to an octagon. Anyway, so, you know, it gives you an idea of the kind of duty is, which makes it sort of all the more interesting that there is a strong streak of spirituality running through this film, that the tone of which is announced by the whatever does not kill us makes us stronger quote. Yeah, the epigraph. uh, Yeah. Yeah, that is the first thing we see. When Conan's father is telling him about the riddle of steel, he tells him a story. He's like, when the gods made everything, they made steel, but then they forgot about steel. Like I, I think what happened is that the giants stole the riddle of steel from the gods and then Krom got mad and punished the giants in the big war. But then at the end of the war, the gods won, Krom won, but the riddle of steel got left on the field and was found by just men, just men. I oh, love the way he right. says it. Yeah. And the, the humans just found this riddle of steel, which they don't deserve to know, but they have it now. And so Krom has to kind of pay attention to them. I love Krom, by the way. He's my favorite god ever. It's like a useless <laughs> asshole. <laughs> But that when you really need him, he loves a good show. So, that, I mean, we'll talk about the prayer. He loves, he, yeah. he loves a good fight. Yeah. 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 That, that prayer to Krom at the end is one of the, my favorite moments in the history of cinema. I just love it. I just love it. But we'll get to it eventually. Well, the prayer to Krom is of a piece with a basic idea that's presented right from the beginning, which is just like, you're on your own in this world. It's not negating the gods. It's like, oh no, the gods exist. And the gods have affairs that interfere with the doings of mankind. We're at the mercy of the gods, just as we're at the mercy of these odd bits of sorcery and weird artifacts that have been scattered upon the earth from a forgotten age. But we're left to our own devices with the strength of our own arm to prevail against whatever the gods might propose. Yeah. Kind of Homeric, really, as a... As a as yeah, a, yeah. The but, days of high adventure, bro. Yeah, exactly. Like in 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 the Iliad and the in the Odyssey, especially. Like Odysseus is totally on his own, and the gods are nothing but. I mean, they help him, they hinder him, they just fuck they, with him. Nothing innately. Yeah, exactly. They just <laughs> fuck with him. Exactly. So it's in that spirit, that kind of that pagan spirit, that I think is so generative of of an adventurous kind of. Life. I mean, there's a once Conan meets up with who, who turns out to be his best friend Subutai, another warrior of the wasteland, an archer. Subutai was uh, Genghis Khan's top general, and Milius just like put him in his film. <laughs> He's the only <laughs> historical figure in the in the in the show. That's cool. I didn't yeah. know that. So, um, you know, when they're having a conversation, they're talking about gods, and you know, they're from different parts of this. Hyborian world, and they're like, "Well, what god do you believe in?" I no, love, it's not I no, love no. the idea. Who is I your? Tell it. me of your god. There's nothing. There's tell nothing to do with belief. No, no, no. I, yeah. I said it wrong. Yeah, I, know, I, co- no, no, I totally not. fucked it up. I said it like a modern person would <laughs> exactly, say. Exactly. What god do you believe in? But that's not the question. Explain the distinction, though, for the folks at home. Well, I think that here uh, the script actually nails the way that pagans used to interact. From what I know, and what do I know? But my sense is that when you met someone, you didn't ask them what God they believed in. You asked them, what gods do you worship? And they'd go, I worship Krom. 
And then Subutai says, I worship the four winds. My God's better than yours. Oh, well, my God doesn't even care about that. He just sits in his mountain. You know, like the whole conversation, the theological conversation is not about, you talk about which gods you worship the same way you talk about which sports team you support or, or like, (laughs) uh, who's your, who's your best friend or who's, who's your role model? Like gods are just unfortunate and I, I have a feeling that in many pagan cultures, gods were just kind of an, an inconvenience that we had to deal with. It wasn't that they yeah. explained the lightning and all this kind of modern retro bullshit that the, we assumed <laughs> that the gods were there as a kind of pseudoscientific kind of uh, principle to explain things because they didn't have like instruments that were precise enough to investigate nature. That's so, that seems to me so silly. Gods are manifested in the events themselves. The lightning doesn't need an explanation. The lightning's already a god. Bang, there it is. And so wow. yeah. you give it a name. You call it Zeus or you call it Krom. And and, yeah. and you worship it or you or you deny it, you negate it, and you worship something else. But you gotta worship something. And then a theological discussion in this world is just kind of this this comparing you're comparing your god to someone else's god it's like i i don't like your god because my god does this and that's the way they talk about it so it's not a question of what do you believe is actually going on in this world the world is kind of given and which aspects of this in its personified form do you worship and even that's putting it in hyper modern terms yeah, but, uh, yeah i love that and actually, this is borne out. This is not just a one-off conversation. These are themes that weave throughout Conan the Barbarian pretty thoroughly. So, for example, when there are a couple of occasions early in Conan the Barbarian where Conan sees something fucked up, like just really, really yeah. extraordinary. One is where he visits a witch. He's in the wasteland and he sees this beautiful, seductive woman in a kind of a a ragged hut, a hovel, and she's yeah. sort of beckoning him in and she has knowledge of things. She seems to be a CRS and she tells Conan things about his destiny. And then she wants to have sex with him and then turns into a kind of a incubus or, or some yeah. kind of like- Succubus, yeah. Or succubus. Some, so succubus is the female version and the incubus is, okay. Yeah. Know your demons. Um, <laughs> and uh, which is actually a genuinely scary moment. Like it he's is. having sex with her. And I first time I watched this film was with my son and my son is getting like super uncomfortable because it's gross to watch a sex scene with your old man. In yeah. the room. <laughs> and then it gets like, it goes from being sexy to horrifying. It just turns on a dime. Yeah. And all of a sudden it's the opposite of sexy. And, <laughs> and that's even more uncomfortable than watching a sex scene with your old man is like <laughs> seeing it transform into something else. And eventually Conan manages to pull her off him and toss her in the fire, at which point she turns into a wraith and disappears. And he says, Crom. Yeah. Crom. And this happened, it happens a couple of times. And you might just think, in fact, the second film, Conan, the Destroyer, plays it like this. It's uh, him saying Krom in response to something the way you'd say, whoa, shit. Yeah. Holy fuck. Yeah. Uh, You know, a common blasphemy. Right. Calice or something of the sort. Yeah. Calice. But (laughs) (laughs) we French Canadians are the masters of blasphemy. You guys are you guys are virtuosi of blasphemy. Sit calice de tabarnak de calvaire. Just string those religious words. It's so great. Mangled religious words one after another. And it's just like, it 
you hit the perfect kind of set to represent your particular <laughs> mood. But the point I'm trying to make is that actually it's linking back to what you just said. When you see the lightning, you know, you don't think like, oh, there must be some causal explanation for it. Therefore, a god, a humanoid figure, yeah. <laughs> much like myself. <laughs> That that's, you know, that's not it. It's more like the thing, the explosion, the blinding flash the of light is itself. Yeah, exactly. Is yeah. the God. And that's how I take those moments in Conan the Barbarian where Conan wide-eyed sees something beyond his experience. And he says, Krom. It's not cussing. It's yeah. that's when you see the God. Exactly. I love that. And this is what happens with modernity. We've done everything we can to overlay the world in such a way that we never, ever see the gods. Or it's really difficult to see the gods. We still see them, but then we call them different things. We don't realize that what impressed ancient peoples wasn't the phenomena of lightning, but the fact of lightning. Not the, yeah, not the yeah. phenomenology or the mechanics by which we dream, but the fact of dreaming, as Borges said. The fact of dreaming is the mystery. I don't care about your explanation. Your explanation is just a way of getting... It, it's Explanations often... I mean, I'm not against explanations, but they often work as a kind of apostasy, a kind of way to deny the fundamental mystery, which is the real thing. That doesn't mean explanations are no good or knowing the world uh, molecularly, let's say, for example, has no advantages as the riddle of steel proves. Like, humans need to know how to manipulate matter to transform their world because we're, the most we're among the most defenseless animals on earth if you just consider us physically. So we need to transform the world. And that's, that's the root of science, right? That's the beginnings of science. But this, the religion is an entirely different thing, I think. So anyways, let's go back to that scene because we, we want to tell the story, right? You were talking yeah, about Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so like, actually, I have to jump all the way back to the opening scene where Conan is being right. told about the riddle of steel. <laughs> that's, right. uh, that's as far as I got. Well, they live in a peacefully in a village in the mountains that, as we are told later, knows no rulers. Actually, I think we're told that in Conan the Destroyer. The clan but system, in event, yeah. Yeah, all of a sudden, though, a troop of armored knights comes storming through the forest and they slaughter the village and enslave the children. And the leader of this warrior band is a man played by James Earl Jones with eerie green eyes and a strange reptilian stare that can sort of uh, hypnotize people. And he hypnotizes Conan's mother, who's a fierce warrior woman who won't allow herself to be captured alive. And even Thulsa Doom's stoutest warriors don't quite know what to do with this woman. So Thulsa Doom just kind of stares in her eyes until she drops her sword, and at which point he cuts her head off with the sword that Conan's father had just forged. So, yeah. And Conan sees every moment of this, imprints it in his memory. And of course, the whole point of the film is going to be his revenge, eventual revenge against Thulsa Doom. Right. So he's brought into slavery. He is made to turn a giant mill wheel. Brilliant scene. 
So the way that they age Conan, so Conan is taken as a child slave and made to work on what's, I think the narrator calls it the wheel of pain, which is basically a mill, like in the middle of the steps, there's this mill of some sort and children. This huge capstan with uh, bars radiating it from it and these unfortunate children pushing on the bars to rotate the capstan. They're basically turning in circles, rotating this... uh, this capstan. And, you know, they give us various angles of this. And as they cut through this long sequence, showing us how um, prolonged Conan's slavery was, you see Conan aging and getting stronger. So that by the end of the sequence, he's like Arnold Schwarzenegger, oiled up and muscular, pushing this thing on his own, pushing the, uh, yeah. the wheel of pain on his own. I just thought that was brilliant. Just a brilliant way of showing the passage of time, cinematically yeah. speaking. Uh, yep. Simple, but just does this thing. Yeah. So you see him, age, he basically grows into an adult as a slave. Right. Um, yeah. And then he's sold to another master who turns him into a pit fighter. Brutal. Yeah. And at first he's just this wide-eyed kid who doesn't know shit about fighting. He's just super strong and he's thrown into a pit, a literal pit, like a stone-lined pit. Really just a Stone Age MMA fighting surface. And uh, he's fighting this guy with teeth that have been filed to sharp points in this kind of half mask. And this guy just keeps biting him. And eventually Kona, not through finesse, but sheer brute strength, ends up killing this guy. And this is the beginning of an illustrious career as a pit fighter, as a gladiator, uh, essentially, as as a gladiator, killing one warrior after another in a quick montage of brutality. Very violent, by the way. It's a very violent movie. (laughs) There's a lot of blood. Yeah. A whole lot of stabbing. And so you see him, yeah, he's kept in a cage, but a very comfortable kind of cage. And women are brought to him. Uh, The the whole thing, it's very, very ancient world. Bread to the finest stock. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Shameless chauvinism, this movie. Like one of the one of the central tropes of sword and sorcery, according to TV Tropes, one of my favorite websites. Uh, sort of sort of fantasies characterized by the trope M is for manly. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it, it has this kind of like, you know, like I watched this with Leslie and she could barely, she couldn't, she, we had to stop it. She's like, this is, this is a movie for 12 year old boys. And she, she just wasn't in the true. right mood. It is true. But I think it's more than that as we've been it's, showing. It's the, it's with the 12 year boy in me certainly gets excited. Yes. By this film. I hope it's not just the 12-year-old boy in you. No, or and, in me. and I think we are trying to establish that. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah, but nevertheless, that is an obvious kind of roadblock to enjoyment, I suspect, for many people who follow our podcast. Yes. You know, if you're super into, I don't know, like uh, Doris Lessing's The Fifth Child, I'm not sure this is your film. Well, it I'm might be. both. Well, yeah, me too. But my point is that, you know, I think for a lot of people who like, you know, delicately shaded literary explorations of the weird, there is nothing delicately shaded about this film. Oh, it's a chiaroscuro. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. But anyway, so just to continue with this. So eventually he's given his freedom. And for no reason that's explained to him one day, his master just kicks him out, tells him to go. And we see him being chased by dogs across the step, which 
is really Crom leading him to the next stage of his destiny, which is falling into this underground, long-forgotten cavern slash tomb where there's the skeleton of an ancient king holding a sword, and that is the Atlantean sword that becomes Conan's sword. And from there, he goes on his wanderings, his adventures. He meets the witch. He falls in with Subotai, and they both of them fall in with another thief named Valeria. And the three an Amazon. Of them, an Amazon, an effortlessly good, strong heroine, like a badass motherfucking fighter. Yes. Uh, a clever and resourceful thief. Somebody who will not blanch at any act of violence and yet is also fiercely loyal faithful unto and even beyond death and is the only woman worthy of Conan. For that matter, Conan is the only man worthy of her. Of Valeria, yeah. Yeah. She's a character from, I think from Red Nails, the Robert E. Howard story, but I think she's very different there. But I remember the name Valeria. The point though is that Subotai and Conan become thieves, that is exactly what Conan is. He's a thief in these films. So what they do is they, they Subotai and Conan end up in this town, this market town, where they see this tower. The uh, snakes. Yeah, what, that they, they learn is a temple for the snake cult. And Conan this whole time has been looking for a symbol because when, he, when his family was murdered – in front of them. The attackers, the kind of invaders, had a standard. They carried the standard and the symbol was of a, like, let's imagine a snake with a head at both ends and the heads are kind of facing each other. So a kind of like U-shaped symbol of a snake kind of facing itself, almost like a weird kind of play on the Uruburos. It's not a snake eating right. its own tail. It's a snake with two heads and the two heads are facing one another. That's the only clue Conan has as to who killed his parents. So he learns that the snake cult that's getting really popular these days, this merchant tells them like, oh yeah, there's a snake cult. It's spreading everywhere. They say they're deceivers. They murder people in the night. These are terrible people. They have this tower in this town. And so Conan and Subutai, who actually take a drug, like Stygian, was it Stygian shrooms or something? They're actually yeah, stoned. Like they that. get stoned. We'll get to the 60s feel of the whole thing. Uh, and they decide to rob to basically go into this temple and steal something just for the hell of it. And it's as they're getting ready to start doing this that they meet Valeria, who happens to be another thief who's planning on pulling a heist on this place. So they work together. That's the most D&D shit ever. Sorry. <laughs> it's like thieves <laughs> meeting and deciding to work together. It's like the ultimate. And I want to get into that too. Yeah. Because yeah. one of the things I love about these films is how they are built from interchangeable modular parts Yes. That are the raw material in D&D the whole time that I was watching both these films. And Conan the Barbarian, I've watched countless times. So re-watching it this time, but this time really kind of realizing like, oh, this whole thing plays out like a and d campaign. Yeah. At every moment, you can imagine the roles that people would take to totally. take the action off in a new direction. Totally. In, in the second movie especially, every spell that the good wizard, uh, Akiro, casts, has a D&D &D equivalent. <laughs> but it's <laughs> coming true. full circle because 
Robert E. Howard was probably the main, him and Fritz Lieber were the main influences or inspirations when Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson uh, designed D&D. They were drawing on Howard and Lieber. So uh, it makes sense. It's true to the spirit of that fiction. Anyways, they meet. And the same shit shows up in video games, like in Skyrim. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. You know, the same stuff shows up in, obviously, in pulp fiction of the fiction of Lieber and... and um, Howard in film and in role playing games, like you know, they're they're just they're tropes, but they're also like kind of pieces of ready made scenery that can be stitched together in a modular way to build new stories. I remember exactly. you once saying that uh, role playing games are a kind of trash stratum built up of fantasy tropes and this and that, but that like that's kind of its genius. Like if this is a classic example of trash stratum stuff where we find the symbols of the divine at the trash stratum. It just dawns on me as you say this that in that way, the act of writing or creating fantasy is analogous to wandering through a fantasy landscape, finding yeah. ruins, finding things that have been left there. Like in a sense, Hyboria is the trash stratum. It's kind of this yeah. plane where all the the, de the detritus of fallen civilizations is just waiting to become story again. Nice, you know. So like, oh, that's yeah. so good. Trash stratum is key here. I, I hadn't, for some reason, it never occurred to me <laughs> till now, till he just said that. But I think the trash stratum is what this show's about. But anyways, let's continue with the story. So they meet Valeria. Is, yeah, and the tower is kind of a silo. It's got this uh, shaft in the center of it. So they they descend into the temple. And Valeria goes off and disguises herself as a cultist because there's a ceremony underway. And one of Thulsa Doom's lieutenants are there because this snake cult is Thulsa Doom's cult. And there's going to be a sacrifice. And she's kind of watching this while Conan and Subutai descend to the bowels of the temple, the underground part, to steal these these jewels, these uh, gems that the cult keeps, including this really huge ruby. And... The gems are protected by a giant snake that uh, Conan and Subutai have to fight. And then they- anyway, Reminded they, me of the giant snake from King Kong. It's not badly made, I have to say. It's a big kind of animatronic- uh, I thought it was good. I thought it I was great. I like the giant snake. Yeah, me too. And the way they kill it, it's brutal. It's so violent. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. So brutal hacking and decapitation. Foreshadowing. It looks exactly- like you were killing a giant snake would look like, like, yeah. um, <laughs> and they, they make away with the jewels with Valeria. Valeria joins them again and then they just squander the loot. They get drunk, they party. They're, they're basically wasting Obviously away. draw yeah. attention to themselves. Exactly. And, uh, a usurper, an, another northerner like Conan who actually rules this area called King Osric the Usurper, this king, his daughter has become a member of Thulsa Doom's cult. So he hires Conan Valeria and Subutai to steal his daughter back and bring her back to him because she has joined this, what turns out to be a the kind of new cult. age cult. <laughs> and that's the final part of the film, or the, I guess the second half of the film is Conan uh, and his friends trying to, well, Conan alone at first, and then eventually joined by his friends, trying to get this girl. But also Conan knows now that Thulsa Doom is the man who killed his parents. And so he wants to kill Thulsa Doom because he saw the same symbol in the temple 
where they did the thievery, like the, he saw the symbol on the wall. So he knows that whoever runs this cult is the, the man who killed his father and his mother and his people. And in the end, of course, he succeeds. Um, that's essentially worth, the story. I don't worth know if noting, wanna, yeah. he, he fails at first. He tries very clumsily to infiltrate the cult, is immediately caught, tortured, and then crucified. But not before Thulsa Doom gives Conan a wonderful lesson in the power of flesh as something that defeats the power of steel. And this is where having James Earl Jones play your villain really comes in handy yeah. because he just delivers the speech in such an effortlessly cool and cold-blooded way. What he means by the power of flesh is how flesh can be manipulated uh, right. much more easily than steel can. And if you can manipulate flesh, if you can use other people as your weapons, you're much more powerful than one dude with a sword. Because Thulsa Doom basically demonstrates the power of flesh by asking one of his cultists to jump off a cliff, which she does and dies. The riddle of steel. Yes. You know what it is, don't you, boy? Shall I tell you? It's the least I can do. Steel isn't strong, boy. Flesh is stronger. Look around you. There, on the rocks, that beautiful girl. Come to me, my child. That is strength, boy. That is power. The strength and power of flesh. What is steel compared to the hand that wields it? Look at the strength of your body, the desire in your heart. I gave you this. Such a waste. talk about the cult because let's talk about the cult yeah this is not just any cult right so the first time we see the cultists is in the temple where the cultists are wearing their proper kind of garb cultist garb and there's a ceremony and a woman's being sacrificed and all that that's in the temple when they first encounter the cult then later on conan is going to Thulsa Doom's mountain of power, his central, his temple of Set, because the, the the cult worships Set, the famous Egyptian god of, I don't know, evil, darkness, traitor god. 
Anyways, he's wandering through the steps and he's going there and he encounters a group of cultists and they're a bunch of dudes with long hair and beards carrying flowers. They basically look like any 60s counterculture, spiritual, intentional community. Yeah. (laughs) Like they look like hippies. Yeah, exactly. Oh, there's so many ways in which both the men and the women in this cult are made to be exactly reminiscent of the kind of empty-eyed, burned-out followers of any number of sinister late 60s, early 70s cult gurus. Yeah. Especially in the early 70s, there was a real Jim kind of... Uh, yeah. Yeah, there was just a rash of cult shit. There was a a trend in the late 70s for cult deprogramming, which I I think is, uh, to put it mildly controversial. But there were like a lot of cases of families whose kids had gone off to various cults, given the cults all their possessions and turned against their families and families like basically arranging to have their kids kidnapped and brainwashed or re-brainwashed to get them out of the cult. Like this was, you know, like all such things, partly moral panic and partly there was something kind of crazy going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, But suffice it to say, anxiety over the idea that some spiritual group could claim your child and they would be forever taken from you and subjected to horrible, unspeakable, possibly fatal abuses and manipulations. This was a toxic fallout of the counterculture. Yeah, but it wasn't all just satanic panic stuff. There no, was a lot of no. truth to it. Like, a lot of, like I a said, there was cults. actual yeah. stuff going on, yeah. Whether or not you can actually quote-unquote deprogram somebody right. from a cult is quite another thing, but nevertheless, that is a... That's something that's topical. It makes the film feel topical because it's just very obviously like, you know, I don't know what Milius's own personal feelings about cults and culty programming might have been, but definitely it has that kind of a Dirty Harry, Death Wish kind of vibe. Which he like, wrote. I think he wrote Dirty Harry. Yeah, he might he, have, he yeah, might have he written did. Death Wish too. I'm not sure. Yeah. He certainly no, he wrote Dirty in, Harry. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so Milius is sort of like the the poet laureate of the middle American backlash against the counterculture. Yes. But he's such a weird guy himself. And so with such a strong sense of his own spirituality that he, he's not easily assimilable to other cultural trends or currents at the time. But this definitely does intersect with that trend. Exactly. So Tulsa Doom is essentially a charismatic guru or has chosen to manifest in that way because we're told he's a thousand years old. He's this ancient wizard who through sorcery has managed to keep his body um, alive much longer than it should. And Conan tries to infiltrate the cult by um, stealing someone's robes and then passes himself off as a priest. But then, of course, in order to prove that he's actually a cultist, he gives the symbol that he stole from the temple to a guard who immediately notices that it's the symbol that was stolen from the temple. And then they (laughs) capture him, torture him and crucify him. And then we have the obligatory Christ scenes where uh, Conan essentially dies on the cross, is rescued by his friends, and then through sorcery is brought back to life by Akiro, his wizard friend. 
Uh, we haven't mentioned him yet. He also meets a wizard. This awesome wizard who is uh, played by, uh, like you were saying, Mako, the Japanese actor. And mm-hmm. this wizard is one of those kind of shaman who live on the fringes of civilization. He lives with the dead. He lives in this essentially this ancient barrow or mausoleum of some sort. And um, he lives there in the wasteland in this awesome hut on sticks, you know, and yeah. like uh, Baba Yaga's hut a little bit. And then um, he's more than half crazy. Yeah, he's he's one of those kind of uh, uh, mad wisdom kind of guys. Yeah, but he is not a guru. He, he's on. He's a good guy. So he manages to bring Conan back by conducting a quite a a very cool kind of ritual. Uh, of, of well, he draws sigils over every square inch of oh, it's so nice yeah. Conan skin, which was something that Miley's apparently got the idea from seeing like a, a Buddhist Kwai Don, uh, the movie Kwai Don. Um, although oh, which I've never seen. Yeah, um, yeah. There's that in Kwai Don. It's a fantastic Japanese uh, anthology film. But also, I mean, I saw some of that when I was in Thailand. Um, the covering the body with uh, scripture. It's something that Buddhists do where Buddhists aren't afraid to admit that they have a religion. Um, uh, so Akiro covers Conan in this... Magical script. Yeah. And then Conan is assailed by spirits who want to take his soul, and he has to basically survive this night in order to live. And his friends try to shoo away the sp- Those spirits are awesome. They're just basically yeah. just, um, what do you call it, uh, rotoscope kind of things. Like yeah. They're just drawn onto the film. But they're these legless kind of ghouls that try to rip Conan's soul out of his body and his friends are trying to shoo them away like they were flies or something. Yeah. And remember the movie Ghost? No. With Patrick Swayze? Never oh, saw it. Because when, when bad people die in Ghost, they get taken by these devils that come out of whatever shadows happen to be around them, their bodies. And those creatures are, I think, inspired by the evil spirits from Conan. It's a really cool scene. But in the end, anyways, Conan survives the ordeal comes back and now he's ready to take his his vengeance with his friends. Valeria swears that she will pay any price to have Conan restored to health and uh the Mako or the, the 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 wizard what's the wizard's name? Akiro. Hero, that's right. And Hero basically says, "Well, that's your ass." I mean, like yeah. Somebody's going to have to pay the price. Someone's going to have to pay the price. And she's like, I don't care. And she does eventually. She is eventually struck down by a snake arrow from Thulsa Doom. The snake arrows are awesome, I have to say. Although she does come back as a vengeful spirit at a climactic moment. A Valkyrie. As a Valkyrie. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little corny, but. Totally corny. I like like Valeria as a character, though. It satisfied me. If you can't acknowledge the corn, don't watch this film. Although I'm I'm misusing the phrase, but acknowledge the corn. Acknowledge the corn, motherfuckers. Yeah, <laughs> I, I should say that I, this is this is an expression that I discovered in my paper copy of Roger's Thesaurus. For ages, I've been using online thesaurus, and at uh, JF's suggestion, got a paper thesaurus. And oh my god, if you love words, a paper thesaurus is the most fun toy. Yeah. That you can have. If you get a thesaurus, get Roger's thesaurus. If you can get an earlier edition, even better, because it's conceptually arranged. It's really an interesting way of organizing language. The, the oh, yeah. Roger is, is the thesaurus rex. 
It's the source yep. you need in your life. Um, yeah, it's a anyways. whole system of knowledge. Anyway, whatever. One thing I discovered in using a thesaurus is the phrase, acknowledge the corn, which means acknowledge your mistake. Admit that you're wrong. And it comes from some kind of like tariff dispute among the early American states. Involving corn. Yeah, somebody was not acknowledging the corn that they were getting duty on. But let's switch to a different possible meaning of acknowledge the corn, which is a meaning that might emerge from the writing of Jack Smith, and particularly the marvelous essay on the perfect cinematic appositeness of Maria Montez. Or actually, I think I got that wrong. The perfect filmic appositeness of Maria Montez. Okay, so I've quoted this before, but Smith talking about the beauty, the moldy beauty, as he put it, in the cheesy 40s jungle flick starring Maria Montez, for example, Cobra Woman. And keep in mind, Jack Smith was the godfather of radical queer performance art. He's an avant-gardist. But his avant-garde wasn't like a John Cage avant-garde of quiet, random sounds or abstract expressionist avant-garde of splashed, non-figurative paint. His was a moldy avant-garde or an avant-garde of moldy theatricalism, of the old, disused, worn-out showbiz tropes and chintzy, tinselly Hollywood crapola that only becomes more and more tinselly and visibly cheap as the years wear on. And what Smith wanted to do was discover a kind of glamour and poetic truth in those faded cheesy old movies, that there is a kind of artistic truth and life that, for Jack Smith, shined forth from all of the fake plaster sets and atrocious acting size of Smith's films. And he talks about these films as having a kind of magic. And he says right in the first paragraph that the magic of such films comes from the most inevitable execution of the conventional pattern of acting. And the inevitable execution of the conventional pattern, that's, I think, a proper benchmark for aesthetic evaluation for a film like this. Not originality, like, you know, the kind of thing that makes something a good Sundance film, a good indie film, is going to be, you know, quirk and uniqueness. The values of literary fiction, avoidance of cliché, and the creation of rounded three-dimensional realistic characters – that has nothing to do with the aesthetic that Jack Smith is erecting from these moldy, decayed remains of old Hollywood glamour. For him, the beauty here comes when you play your tropes straight. So all of the kind of tropes we've been talking about, these interchangeable and modular pieces of plot and setting that go into RPGs or films or comic books or what have you, these things shine with a kind of brilliant inner light when you play them straight. Yeah. You play your cliches straight. And that is the genius of John Milius's direction. He plays everything as if it is 110% serious. There's never a winking moment of irony. And Jack Smith's love of these films was sort of ironic, but mostly not. No, it wasn't. Ultimately, it wasn't ironic. Ultimately, irony was just one part of the process, I think, for Jack Smith. 
as he makes clear at the very end of the essay, when he describes uh, a person his friend saw on the street. With a rose between his teeth. Calling out, you know, I am, I am Maria Montez. Montez. I am. That's how you see that irony maybe is a means to an end for Smith, but ultimately it's not the final destination. And that's where Jack Smith is different from a lot of the people he probably, like, Influenced, know, in, influenced, yeah. who kind of cash in on irony, because uh, irony, yeah. wanted or not, irony for irony's sake ends up reinforcing, consolidating what you're mocking, uh, or uh, what you're trying to um, distinguish yourself from. If exactly if you're trying to be counterculture and you're just capitalizing on irony, you're basically just consolidating the status quo in the long run. Yeah, you're um, kind of saying, I'm better than this, but I'll slum for a little bit and get my kicks here. Exactly. Whereas, yeah. you know, Conan, as you mentioned, and this is the, one of the differences between the first and second film, is the second film, you can feel irony starting to slip in. And I'm sure that the Jason Momoa version is just ironic throughout. But the original film, zero irony. You know, it's as in earnest as Nietzsche. You know, and Nietzsche used irony all the time, but Nietzsche was ultimately not an ironist, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think that's quite right. So the name of the game is, you know, at the end of that essay, Smith says, perhaps that guy's a nut, the dude with the rose between his teeth declaiming, I am Maria Montez. He said, perhaps that guy's a nut, but we have somehow to understand that person. Yeah. And that's the touchstone of his aesthetic is passionate identification. You have to understand what it would be to be somebody who will passionately and sincerely declaim, I am Maria Montez. Yeah. And that is what you need to be able to do to enjoy these films. Well, and especially Conan the Barbarian. There's another passage in this essay that I'm going to read where he has a, a quote from a script or actually a synopsis as a kind of offset paragraph, night. The villain, high priest, enters the bedroom of the old queen, in parentheses, good, and stabs her in her bed. Seen through a carved screen in background, at that moment, the sacred volcano erupts, orange light flashes, old queen stares balefully, says something, and dies. Now the cobra priestess, the evil sister, and the high priest can seize John Hall, betrothed to, and the good sister, rightful ruler, and imprison them with no opposition. Persecution of Cobra Island, crushing offerings demanded for King Cobra. That's this offset little chunk of scenario for Cobra Woman. Smith comments, there is a unsophisticated, certainly, validity there. Also, theatrical drama, the best kind. Also, interesting symbolism, delirious, hokey, glamour, unattainable because once possessed, and juvenile at its most passionate. It's so good. And there's actually kind of a guide of like how to watch these films. Yeah. If you know how to read this essay, you will know how to watch films like Conan the Barbarian in the appropriate mindset. I find it amusing that maybe an hour ago I said, well, we can just summarize the story really quickly because it's a very simple story. Yeah. <laughs> so we got to get to the end of the story. So yes. after being revived from his death-like state, 
Conan starts rockying up. We get a training montage, of course. Of course, yeah. It's an 80s movie. And then he sets his trap. He creates a series of diabolically cunning traps in this kind of mausoleum or barrow. No, no, no. We're skipping the part where they they go in and rescue the princess. Oh, yeah. I did forget about that. Immediately after he comes back from the dead, then they go and rescue the princess. They break into the temple just as the cult is indulging in a, a cannibalistic orgy. So like there's a big cauldron where people are kind of drinking out of and it's just filled with body parts. It's really gross. And Thulsa Doom sits on his throne kind of presiding over this orgiastic rite. And Conan and his friends break into the temple by going in through the caves at the back of the mountain and basically just create havoc. They they just take on all of the guards on their own and make away with the princess. And the princess, of course, doesn't want to leave. She's totally in love, enraptured by Thulsa Doom, but they take her by force. Thulsa Doom escapes them by transforming in a wonderful scene, transforming into a giant snake and leaving through a hole in the wall. So Conan and his friends are able to get away with their prize. And so they bring the princess back. They tie her up to a, you know, they they basically have to restrain her because she wants to go back to Thulsa Doom and she keeps threatening them, telling them that Thulsa Doom's going to kill them all. And that's when Conan realizes, well, Thulsa Doom's coming after us now. So we have to prepare here. They're staying in a place called the Mounds, basically this graveyard uh, where this wizard lives. And they set up a whole bunch of traps so that Conan and Subutai, because Valeria is killed in the the attempt to to rescue the princess, so that they can, the the two of them, take on the 30-some horsemen that are coming after them. And as they're preparing for this, when they're all ready and they're just, they can see the horses of the enemy approaching, Thulsa Doom and his men coming back to reclaim the princess... Conan is watching them approach, and then he says a prayer. And I just want to read it because it is so good. He says, Krom, I have never prayed to you before. I have no tongue for it. No one, not even you, will remember if we were good men or bad, why we fought or why we died. All that matters is that two stood against many. That's what's important. Valor pleases you, Krom, so grant me one request. Grant me revenge. And if you do not listen, then to hell with you. (laughs) (laughs) So awesome. (laughs) To hell with you. But what I love about that prayer is the appeal to an aesthetic universe. Okay. And I'm not saying this is the end of the story. You know, Uh, know, I don't think that the universe is only aesthetic. I think it's also moral. But I think at this point in time, from Conan's perspective, it's just aesthetic. He appeals to Krom, not saying our cause is just. We are the good guys. Help us because we're good. He's saying, no, two stood against many. That's what matters. It's a goddamn story that you want to experience, Krom. Make us win because it would be so awesome if we won. And it's this idea of the gods seeing the story of humanity as a kind of drama. And what makes it amazing is how humans are able to beat the odds, It's not a matter of who's right and who's wrong, who believes in the right God, who believes in the wrong God. It's a matter of putting on the best show possible for the gods. And again, I think that's pretty Homeric. That's pretty much how Homer thought. But I want to stress that this way of thinking that Conan shares with Subutai 
and the wizard Akiro in Valeria is contrasted with the way that the cult thinks about gods. I think mm. that Tulsa Doom has indoctrinated his cultists with something like what we mean when we talk about gods. They believe in Set. There's a kind of metaphysical transcendence in Tulsa mm. Doom's cult that doesn't exist for the pagan thieves that beat him in the end. Hmm. I, I mean, this is sketchy as hell, but I, I think there's something like there. It. Yeah, because, you know, the, the snake cult... Like we were, I was saying earlier, there are precedents. Like one snake cult that I particularly like is the Gnostic Ophites. The Ophites were second century cult that basically worshipped the snake from the Garden of Eden as the first incarnation of the messianic figure who infiltrated the world of the false god to give gnosis to Adam and Eve. I don't know if this is conscious on Malias's part, but... Thulsa Doom's snake cult reminds me of a lot of the early Gnostic sects, you know, the Sethians. The Sethians is another example. I love that that's one of your favorite snake cults. Yeah. I also I like, like, the, like the idea is like JF's top five snake cults. <laughs> it's my a YouTube video. <laughs> I was <laughs> reading they, about, uh, there's, a, there's some really cool snake cults in, obviously, in, in Africa and there were snake cults in, among the Aztecs. So a lot of cool snake cults. The, I mean, the... The snake is an animal that lends itself easily to cults, you know, to religious thought in general. But the Ophites I've always liked because the way they invert what would become the dominant Christian myth is very interesting. The way they see that the serpent in Eden as a salvific figure. They weren't the only Gnostic cults to make this move. Uh, I just find it really kind of interesting. And when I think of Thulsa Doom's cult in those terms, it all kind of makes sense, right? Yeah. These are Gnostics. These are people who have rejected this world. They don't accept the terms we're given in this world of, you know, fallenness, this world of Dasein, this world where we all exist as part of some history that exceeds us and we have to kind of play our part or find our place in it. They form their own kind of utopia, uh, which they believe <laughs> is above this world, transcends this world. And of course, it doesn't. It's all about power in the end. That's not actually too far off from a lot of countercultural, like... Uh, Gnosticism all the way down, man. Kind of countercultural Gnosticism. I never quite <laughs> thought of that, but that's yeah. very interesting. Okay, so let's finish up the story. Conan yeah. wins. Boom. He wins in an awesome way. He does. I mean, Conan and Subutai beat the warriors that come after him, including the two. Uh, Conan kills both of Thulsa Doom's two lieutenants. Rexor yeah. and Thorgrim. Thorgrim's is a good Thorgrim? name. Yeah, it is it's, Thorgrim. Good job. I love, I love those characters. One is a bodybuilder and the other was like a professional football player. Like you said, they look like your uncles in the 70s. Yeah, exactly. Like they should be wearing a cutoff jean jacket and... <laughs> yeah. uh, an Iron Maiden tour shirt. Exactly. Yeah. So they get killed. And then Conan alone infiltrates the temple once more. And just as Thulsa Doom. Oh, and, and, and in the course of defeating the bassist from Blue Oyster Cult. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he finds that that guy still has his dad's sword. Right. And he breaks the sword that his father forged with his own sword, the Atlantean sword. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but then he brings with him, not his own sword, but the shard, the broken shard of his father's sword, his father's sword with him to the final showdown with Thulsa Doom. Yeah. That seems important. 
Oh, it's absolutely important. It's full circle. Also, there's the point during the battle where Valyria comes back as a Valkyrie and kind of helps Conan for a second before disappearing. In the second film, we learned that it's been revealed to Conan that Valyria sits beside Krom now in the in Valhalla, I guess. Anyways, so Conan returns to the temple of Set on his own, breaks in, and just as Thulsa Doom is leading this kind of ritual with his people who are all standing below him in the valley with torches, quite a striking scene, Conan just shows up behind them and Thulsa Doom tries to use his powers on Conan. Conan won't hear it. He just grabs Thulsa Doom by the hair and just beheads him. And it takes several, <laughs> several strikes. Brutal of slashes. Broken sword to behead Thulsa Doom. Uh, and that's the end of that cult. Because cults, when the, the charismatic at the center of a cult dies, the cult disperses. Um, he also hurls the head down a 70-foot yes. flight of stairs, which is an awesome set that was built for the film so the cult oh, yeah. something cult headquarters is a sort of really cool fucking building this great like it looks like white marble temple of course it was built out of balsa wood but uh yeah they built this whole temple with this long flight of stairs so that at the end conan's left alone all of the cultists have wandered off and he burns it to the ground so yeah. satisfying. It is. Yeah. And then the film ends with a kind of coda, fades to black, and then we see Conan sitting on a throne as a king because the, the seeress that he meets at the beginning prophesies that he will become a king by his own hand. And the narrator says that, yeah, eventually Conan became a king. How does he say it? With a crown on his furrowed brow on a, on, a, on his troubled brow yeah a crown on his troubled brow it's not a happily ever after it's not like aragorn is the king uh at the end of lord of the rings it's more like being a king was like the worst possible fate it just shows that in conan's universe in hyboria there is no escape from the condition of sword and sorcery. You're just in that. There's no valor that will transcend the forces of this world. You just have to deal with this world as it is. You have to trust only yourself and perhaps if you're skillful, your sword. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and, of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>